Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm delighted today to present another special episode of our podcast in which you'll hear a recent conversation hosted by the Center for a New American Security about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Russia's swift and unprovoked invasion of the country this past week has been met with intense condemnations from leaders across the globe, including in the United States and Europe. As Russian soldiers engage in a full air and land operation on a massive scale, questions remain about how their military campaign might unfold, how these events might affect Putin domestically, and about the geopolitical implications for surrounding countries and the NATO alliance. To shed some light on these critical questions, I took part in a conversation on February 25th with three other CNAS experts, Richard Fontaine, Michael Kaufman, and Jeff Edmonds. Here's our conversation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this special CNES event on the war in Ukraine and what is coming next. I'm Richard Fontaine, CEO of the Center for New American Security. Thanks to everybody for joining us uh, today. As we gather virtually, as I think everyone knows, Russia's in the midst of a, an unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine in an effort, it seems, to topple the democratically elected government there. The latest reports show Russian troops closing in on Kiev and fighting in and around numerous Ukrainian cities following a significant Russian effort to destroy key Ukrainian military, military infrastructure. This seems to be, as U.S. intelligence has predicted for some time, a Russian effort at forcible regime change in Ukraine, though we'll discuss here the possible end states. Um, whatever those may be, it seems clear that the events that we're witnessing now will have profound effects on Europe, on U.S. policy toward Russia and the region, and on American foreign policy globally. To discuss where things are right now and where they're going, we have three uh, great experts with us. Andrea Kendall-Taylor is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at CNES and served previously as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia, among other things. Jeff Edmonds is an adjunct senior fellow at CNES. He serves in CNA's Russian Studies Program and was director for Russia on the National Security Council staff. Uh, and Mike Kaufman is also a CNES adjunct senior fellow. He's the research program director uh, in Russian stu Russia Studies at CNA and is a specialist in the Russian Armed Forces. So um, I'm going to get the discussion started. If uh, folks tuning in have questions, please put them in the Q&A box. We'll try to get to as many as we can. And uh, Mike, maybe I will uh, start with you just for uh, a minute or two or three, and you could tell us, um, you've been looking at this with, with quite a, a granular feel, uh, where the situation is on the ground right now in terms of what you are seeing uh, in terms of the Russian invasion and uh, military effort there. Sure, um, be happy to. Just the caveat up front, these are very early impressions of the first couple of days of fighting, and there's a lot of confusion, as there always is in war, and lots of conflicting reports. But you know, my initial impression is that the Russian operation is very much one pursuing maximalist war aims, and it's looking like they're trying to reach the capital as fast as they can to encircle Kiev. It also looks like they're attempting large pincer movements to try to cut off and encircle big parts of the Ukrainian military in the east and, and south of the country. Uh, the war started out with a Russian campaign striking with uh, cruise missiles against critical infrastructure, air defense, these types of things, and very quickly moved into a big multi-axis ground offensive, Russian troops crossing from the border in Belarus to the north, heading towards Kiev, 
you had large kind of attempts at offensives in the eastern part of the country by Kharkiv, by Sumy and the like, and there's been heavy fighting there and also some heavy uh, urban combat as well in Sumy. Lots of shelling from the forces occupied, uh, sort of the occupied uh, parts of the Donbass, and a pretty substantial Russian breakout to the south from Crimea, where you see Russian forces have reached Kherson and are breaking out towards Militopol, heading both kind of northwest and northeast out of Crimea. I think that's probably where they've made the most gains in the last two days. Um, that said, you still see Ukrainian forces uh, holding up, counterattacking, offering considerable resistance. I'm saying the first two days, there's still Ukrainian air defense and Ukrainian aircraft up. Um, we've only seen a fraction of the Russian force entering this operation compared to what is currently arrayed and deployed. So it's important folks to understand that this is very early fighting. I think what the Russian military tried to do was make rapid early gains. They're primarily using roads. They tried to advance very quickly. They're not using nearly as much firepower as you would typically expect from them. I think they tried something that at best had very mixed results for them. I think the things they're trying aren't necessarily working very well right now, but they're likely going to adjust. Um, it's very clear that we're settled in for a, a lot of heavy fighting and the war that's likely going to drag on at this stage, just looking at the first couple of days of fighting. Uh, at this point, I'll just sort of summarize the, the situation on the ground by saying Russian forces have reached the outskirts of Kiev today, and likely going to be significant uh, uh, urban fighting around the capital. And there's a breakout kind of in the eastern part of the country where they're trying to avoid Kharkiv and create another access heading to the river. But Ukrainian forces are counterattacking as well, and they've proven quite quite resilient in the fight. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Great. Um, that's really helpful. Jeff, um, maybe I can ask you to elaborate uh, a little bit on this with what you're seeing in terms of the air campaign. And then if you have any thoughts about, I mean, contemplating urban combat in a city of almost 4 million people, um, you know, highly developed European city in Kiev is a pretty nightmare scenario. And it um, at least is not obvious that this would be Russia's first choice uh, in a move like this. So maybe if you have any insights into what to expect there. Sure. Um, yeah. And I, I, I agree with everything Mike was saying. I think that the, the, the speed at which the ground offensive took place was, was rather surprising. I had expected a longer aerospace campaign. And I think that there are a couple of reasons behind that. One is um, one is the Russians don't have the, 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 the level of, of ammunition that like the United States or somebody has when it comes to long range strike. It's a fairly new capability to the Russian military. But also, I think more importantly, it was to Mike's point, I think there was a high level of optimism in the Russian military that they could move very quickly, uh, meet little resistance and make heavy gains early on. I think that's actually the primary driver why we saw that ground campaign happen so fast. But so now, like Mike said, you've got to the outskirts of, of Kiev and the game really changes at that point. And so it's going to be interesting to see and probably rather tragic um, fighting in the city. And I, you know, I've said that the insurgent part of this is really kind of the big unknown. Um, out in the, in the broader open open areas of, of Ukraine, it's a little bit harder. But in the cities, obviously, you know, the, 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 the ground is a little bit more level. The, the capabilities are a bit more level. Um, and you can really get bogged down in, in street to street fighting. I think in the rest of the country, um, Russian forces I would be surprised if they got into urban warfare in those cities like Kharkiv and stuff like that. I imagine that they will try to you know, move around those, take critical 
infrastructure around those cities where they need them, airfields and things like that. We've seen that. Um, but I think, you know, in Kiev, if they want to, it, it, you know, the, the key of the Ukrainian leadership is proving rather resilient. So if the Russians want them to leave, I think they're going to have to actually physically make them leave. And that's that could potentially be pretty costly and drag this out a lot further and, and just raise the political cost of this as well. Uh, just a couple more questions about the tactical situation, then we'll sort of pull back and, and look at some of these bigger questions. And, um, and Andre, I want to go to you in just a, a couple questions, but just on the um, Mike and, and Jeff on the tactical situation. So one, um, are you surprised we haven't seen more activity in terms of cyber attacks and uh, electronic warfare, you know, uh, trying to dominate the electromagnetic spectrum? Um, and then two, there's a lot of talk um, by the Ukrainian government about arming civilians, passing out 10,000 assault rifles, you know, people should pick up Molotov cocktails and throw them at Russians uh, who are, are coming into the cities. Um, how do you uh, assess, if you can assess, the ability of the, I guess we would call them sort of irregular uh, Ukrainian forces, civilians or, or others who have been kind of just very recently uh, drafted into, into this fight? Mike, maybe I can go to you and then Jeff. Yeah, sure. So, you know, on regarding the, the prospect for urban warfare and handing out all these arms to various civilians, I think there's a number of cities where you're likely going to see people take up arms as Russians enter them. It's been a very uh, kind of mixed situation in the first two days. In the first 24 hours, you saw a number of Russian units just driving through cities in the east and the south. But these were likely recon elements and they were principally unopposed, right? There's videos of them just kind of going through town. And then by the time night fell, you started seeing some real urban combat and resistance in a number of the cities that looked like they had fallen, but really had, right? So right now you're essentially having um, these cities contested and you're seeing Russian forces more being dragged into some urban fighting, most likely initial resistance by, uh, by the Ukrainian military. On the prospects for you know, attacking cities like yeah. You know, I think probably the the Russian scheme has has been optimistic. That is, they they most likely assume that there wouldn't be substantial urban combat. They probably assume that a, a large part of Ukrainian forces might stay stay uh, stand aside or choose not to fight them. And they likely assume that they, when they got to the cities, there would be some political upheaval. Maybe Zelensky would flee or something else that would then allow them to move their people into place because there is some political aspect to the Russian plan. Another shoe that's yet to drop where they've clearly pre-cooked something with Ukrainian elites. They must have, it is very unlikely they're conducting this kind of large scale military operation without some political plan behind it. I, I find I'm very skeptical and I, I wouldn't be surprised if anything happens to the Ukrainian government, that suddenly pro-Russian elites emerge uh, amongst Ukrainians to cobble together some kind of uh, a pro-Russian government in Kiev. Jeff? Yeah, on the you mentioned electronic warfare, and I think it's it's interesting to note that we've said this before that in many ways the Russians are fighting a war that that they don't normally they haven't normally trained for. Not that they can't do it. But, you know, normally the Russians are are you know in their minds facing a conventionally superior enemy with um, much more complicated command and control, uh, much more network systems, and the EW capability was built around, you know, countering that. I'm not sure how much the Russians have been able to deconflict their own networks from their their rather powerful EW systems 
and they may not want to engage the you know you overuse those and, and actually you know degrade their own systems which are better than the ukrainian so it's a, it's a weird reverse role than what you've normally seen them play in in their strategic exercises um but also i you know i'd caveat that with you know an open source it's very hard for us to tell besides people re reporting cell phones down and things of that nature it's very hard for us to tell the actual effects of electronic warfare um, just from from the outside okay and then uh, jeff last question um maybe for you uh on the the tactical situation so one of the lines in uh, putin's speech about uh, those who might interfere will can expect consequences like you've never seen or something along those lines uh has been interpreted several different ways and some people said well this is at least a uh, a veiled reference to the nuclear deterrent. I spoke last night with a senior administration official who said that they haven't seen anything change on the nuclear side. I mean, nothing's moving or alert status or things like that. But um, but what do you make of of the nuclear dimension uh, of this and whether that is at all uh, at issue here as we watch this unfold? I think if this, I think if the conflict stays inside Ukraine, we're not, I don't think we're going to see, I don't really think there's a threat of nuclear use. I mean, I think rhetorically, he's trying to, to maintain escalation dominance there and just kind of threaten everybody else. If you get involved in this, there are all these consequences down the road. And that, I mean, that's that's the way he, he, he approaches these things. Um, I guess I would be worried, I mean, in the in the framework of escalation management that the Russians have, this you know, nuclear weapons are further down the field. And I wouldn't be concerned about those in, unless this broke out into a wider U.S. NATO versus Russia fight. And then all of those things we have studied about Russian use of non-strategic nuclear weapons and all those things, that's when that would come into play. But I think we're, we're pretty far away from that right now. Great. Um, all right, Andrea, I'm going to bring you in for a, a few questions here now as we zoom out a little, just a little bit and look at some of the broader implications and questions. So the big question I think that everybody seems to be trying to figure out is, well, to paraphrase what General Dave Petraeus said about Iraq, tell me how this ends. Uh, because there was a debate about whether they were going to encircle Kiev and try to make demands and see if this government would meet those at the pain of, you know, something, or whether they were going to go in and try to topple the government forcibly and install a puppet regime of sorts. Assuming that the latter now looks likelier, how does that stick? I, you know, so let's say Viktor Yanukovych is the Russian pick or whoever to become the Ukrainian president. The, unless the Russians are prepared to occupy Ukraine indefinitely, in which case they probably need a bigger force than they've got, and they invite an insurgency on our hands. No one knows us better than America what it's like to try to occupy a country when that population doesn't want you to do it, or at least big portions of it, um, you, in, you incite an insurgency. Or they go home, and what is the staying power of the regime they put into place, given that they've turned the vast majority of the Ukrainian people against them in a very violent way? So so tell tell me how this ends. I don't know. You just laid out the the the, the unknowns, all of the kind of costs, um, the potential miscalculation on Putin's end. I think it's it is really really hard to understand what his end game is in this scenario. So obviously you've talked about, and we've heard Mike and 
Jeff talk about the fact that most immediately it seems like they're going for Kiev to decapitate the government, install the pro the pro Russian regime. But your point, Richard, is so right. I mean, I I think that's where the miscalculation from Putin comes from. You know, I think we just heard him talk about today. You know, telling you, Ukrainian soldiers, your the fate is in your own hands, and you need to get rid of this kind of neo-Nazi drug dealing government. Or and that's not his exact phrase, but it was something along those lines. Where I think Putin really believes um, that if you could just decapitate the government, that there is more pro-Russian sentiment under the surface. And surely that will come out and lead to a more sustainable long-term solution if you can just get the right government at the top. Um, I think all of us would agree that is um, highly optimistic um, and unlikely to play out that way. But I'm not sure how President Putin sees it. He might judge that that is a sustainable solution to the problem. Um, you also threw out the other op- the other option, which is more of a long-term partition of the country. And I still think that is, you know, highly plausible. Um, the way that we heard President Putin talking about, um, you know, the fact that Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist. We're hearing stories that on Russian state television, that there are maps of Ukraine with the pieces of Ukraine that have were given away by Soviet leaders and imperialist leaders. That, and by the way, that goes wet, far west of, of the river. So I, I, I also don't think it's um, a foregone, I, I think it's also plausible that he could be looking to partition, that he is playing for keeps, that he is thinking about his legacy and being the gatherer of the lands. And this goes along with the um, erosion of Belarusian autonomy at the same time. So for Putin, he could be looking, you know, now he, he, he might judge that he can basically bump out Ukraine's periphery to include now basically all of Belarus um, and large swaths of Ukrainian territory. Again, a very costly endeavor, but it's hard to know how he's weighing those different um, possibilities. Let me ask you maybe just something, a lot of this is speculation, but on what you were just describing in terms of Putin's motivations and beliefs and understandings. I mean, if, if a lot of this is tied to, well, Ukraine should never be in NATO because NATO is a threat to me, even though I think we would agree that NATO is not a threat to invade Russia. But, but if that's what he believes, at least defining his interest that way, a certain uh, state of, of, of reasonable, uh, activities could flow for that, even though we would find those unacceptable and unreasonable ourselves. If, on the other hand, he really believes that the democratic elected Jewish president of Ukraine is a neo-Nazi and that the they are riddled with drug addicts who are running the country and that they are actively committing genocide. But if he believes any of that, as opposed to just saying those things because that's the public wash in order to build support for this, this uh, military thing, it, it seems like we're kind of in bigger trouble because then it's very hard to, t- to, to, to understand what the next step might be and how grounded in rationality that might be. So do you have a sense at all? I know this is speculation, but a sense of what the reality is here in terms of Russian decision-making? I mean, well, the, the, the one reality we know is that there's one man calling the shots um, and that's President Putin. And that's become increasingly evident over the course of even the last week or so where you could see him um, basically, you know, that, that whole sham um, and stage managed National Security Council meeting where he goes down and dresses down members of his inner circle, including the head of his 
uh, intelligence services, it's pretty clear to me that he now is, I mean, we talk about highly personalized authoritarian regimes. This is really to the extreme. And it seems to me that there is now no one in his inner circle that can constrain him. I highly doubt that there is anyone who's presenting information that significantly contradicts now with his views of the world. Um, I think another element that, you know, of, of personalism is paranoia. Um, we know that uh, there's, again, great academic research that shows that the personalist leaders tend to be more paranoid. And the more repressive you get, the more paranoid the leader, because you, A, don't have people giving you good information because they are fearful. And you could see the palpable fear on the faces of the members of his inner circle. Um, and you have a hard time um, reading your society. Legibility gets really hard when there's high levels of repression. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a combination of A, it is now to me, it seems like extremely an extreme form of personalism where one man is really calling the shots. And I think that man is extremely paranoid. We know he's long been paranoid. Putin has always been about searching out enemies, both internal and external. Um, but to me, it, you know, with the isolation that everyone is talking about that was amplified by COVID, it really does seem that he has moved into an extreme form of paranoia. And it's getting really hard to parse what he believes um, from what he's kind of instrumentalizing to, to justify his actions in Ukraine. Um, some of the things that he's saying, you know, that Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist, I think he definitely believes those things. Whether or not he believes that Ukraine's trying to develop nuclear weapons or some of the other things that you said, Richard, that's harder to know. Um, but, it's a, but it's a dangerous situation nonetheless when you have one man calling the shots who is extremely paranoid. Right. Um, well, uh, let me um, bring in uh, the three of you. May, Andre, I'll start with you and then uh, Mike and Jeff, if you have thoughts. So there's a, um, you know, the sanctions are, are kind of become a key um, response of, of the United States and others. Um, there's a question here from John in the audience about SWIFT and what the effectiveness of removing Russia's access to SWIFT is. It's kind of, uh, SWIFT seems to just in the past 48 hours have taken on almost a totemic sort of status where, you know, th th there are these cries to, you know, if, if you do one thing, kick them off SWIFT. Maybe Andrea, I can start with you. Would that matter at all to what we're seeing on the ground? And if it, or would it matter in some other way? And what do you think we should do about SWIFT as opposed to all of the uh, uh, sanctions that have already been announced with respect to Russian banks and export controls? Um, no, I don't think it would matter in the near term. I mean, I don't. I think it's fair to say that sanctions haven't shaped Putin's calculus um, in any way, shape, or form. The sanctions post-2014 obviously were not significant enough to avoid us being in the situation that we're in today. And I think, again, when you're talking about a leader who is fighting a war of aggression against a country that he doesn't think should exist, that sanctions and economic costs are unlikely to be the thing that's going to change his calculus. Um, so I think then the point of the sanctions, and we heard this a little bit from President Biden, I guess it was yesterday, um, talking in a little bit of a longer term horizon. I mean, he talked about the fact that we shouldn't expect sanctions to work right away, that this was a longer term proposition. And so I think what the goal now of sanctions is, is to constrict and constrain Putin's ability to his capacity for aggression and beyond Russia's borders. It's a, I mean, it is kind of getting back into kind of a Cold War mindset where it is a kind of containment, trying to degrade and erode his ability to sustain this aggression into the long term. Um, I think the SWIFT question, again, I'm not an economist and I've never worked, you know, in Treasury or on sanctions directly, 
But what I gather from people is that actually the sanctions on the banks, um, on Sparebank and VTB and others, is actually more costly for the Russians than is SWIFT. Um, and I, that makes sense to me. And I, I you know, I, I don't want to, I can't necessarily talk to all the details about how that works, but um, I think those sanctions are going to be impactful over the long term, um, combined with the export controls that we're seeing being put in place. Those things, I think, do have the capacity to really constrain Russia's uh, economy and ability to innovate in a way that um, I think can be useful, not necessarily in changing Putin's behavior. I don't think I don't think we're going to change Putin's behavior at this point after 22 years in power, but it can at least constrain his capacity for aggression, I think. Jeff, is that kind of now the the underlying logic of the sanctions, which is we can impose a lot of sanctions, but it won't change anything for a long time. Um, but over a long period of time, it will starve the Russian economy and military establishment of resources and therefore uh, reduce its ability to project power. Is that kind of what, what we've defaulted to, I guess, in terms of the sanctions now that there's no deterrent effect? And, and what's the long term, if that's the underlying rationale? Oh, you're muted. It wouldn't be one I of these. That guy. I, was was that guy. Muted. Um, I was just that guy. Um, no, I think that I don't think anybody in the administration is overly optimistic about about sanctions working. Um, and I think that it is more of a, a long term play. And I would agree with what Andre was saying. We everybody has talked about SWIFT. This goes back to 2014 and what we, you know, previously previous to that, what we did with Iran. And I just, you know, there's some great articles out there explaining why SWIFT is not the nuclear option that everybody believes it to be. Banks can still bank. If they're not in SWIFT, it becomes harder. Life becomes more difficult, but they can still conduct transactions where when you drop one of these banks from the system, that's really kind of a, you know, death toll for that for that particular bank and has the potential to affect, you know, individuals lives much more than, than a SWIFT than kicking somebody out, out of SWIFT. And I do think there are long term, you know, so the Russian economy and, and Mike's written about this. Russian economy is kind of on a war footing. It's got a large reserve. They've protected certain things. They're still heavily invested in, in very strategic markets. I do think there are longer term issues with the, with the Russian economy that some of these other sanctions, like against microelectronics, will really impact. Um, there's a real, there's actually a real uh, brain drain problem. There's a a problem with a lack of of technological savvy in in the in the Russian system writ large. And I think that over time, um, that really becomes um, pretty painful as far as competition goes. And so I think that, you know, the longer these stay on, um, the, the more bleak the outlook is for the, for the Russian economy. And Mike, maybe you could speak to the export controls aspect of this. I mean, if, if Russia can no longer access high-end uh, cutting-edge semiconductors, for example, then it, it would seem to put a real crimp in their space program, their civilian space program, their, their military um, efforts, but, it, but everything else too, things in the civilian economy. And so how do you sort of see the long-term effects of that? And, and just getting back to this question of the rationale of the sanctions, and there's been several kind of offers. Originally, it was deter. We're going to change Russian behavior. They'll avoid doing something that they would otherwise do, like invade Ukraine. There's also, there seems to be a punitive kind of thing that even if it won't change anything, we just want to inflict pain on, on the people who have done this. Um, there's this long-term, well, this will weaken them over some long indeterminate time horizon. This will weaken the entire country and they'll be less uh, able to do things they want. 
And then there's the, well, it'll, it might not do anything to the Russians, but it'll deter the next would-be aggressor by demonstrating that he may not want to pay a price as high as Vladimir Putin has paid for this kind of activity. So how do you see the utility of the sanctions, especially given how central this is now to the response of the world? So on the economy, I'd say that definitely export controls and, and access to both technology and capital will be the main issue constraining um, both the Russian economy, particularly Russia's defense and tech sectors moving forward. And one of the challenges Russia has had throughout is that it's not a very diversified economy, right? And it is a government whose budget is very dependent on the export of natural resources. We know that very well. The Russian economy is dominated by a service sector um, followed by manufacturing sector, but it's not particularly diverse. The state dominates capital. It, uh, there are a lot of very inefficient sort of industries that provide immense large numbers of employment, but they're not very competitive. So Russia's going to really suffer when it loses access to chips. Um, if we look at particularly chips made in Taiwan, if other, uh, major producers of chips of electronic circuitry, of electronic circuitry boards and the like, no longer export to Russia. They will have to buy perhaps much cheaper, lower quality products from countries like China, but it's going to severely affect their competitiveness moving forward. I think it will also affect their ability to produce in larger numbers, advanced military technology. On third party effects, the use of sanctions and what it might do long-term. So, I mean, we know obviously in the tour of Russia in this case, and Ukraine's already kind of the largest country in Europe. So I don't think I don't think uh, as Andrea said anybody seriously thought those sanctions were going to really deter Putin here. But they definitely do two things in my view. The first is they are going to severely limit over time um, uh, Russia's ability to further develop its military and to be competitive on the military side if this situation stays moving forward. So when we talk about the military balance of Europe, when we talk about European security, looking out to the 2020s, more conversation about the medium term, right? And how we perceive the Russian threat and the Russian conventional military, I think it definitely will have effect on their ability to keep up technologically with the United States and with NATO. And that has, that, that has a significant outcome for us. If we look in the 2030s, which is typically what we do now, the 2030s are actually not that far away from a standpoint of military analysis. It's actually more like the nearest period we look to is the 2030s at this stage. And uh, the other part is I fully agree about third party effects. I mean, I think um, even if it doesn't deter Russia, I think it has tremendous third party effects. I know a lot of people are looking at this to try to figure out what if any lessons China might draw from it. And you want to signal very cautiously and carefully to China and show them very clearly um, what could happen to them, what the United States has the resolve to do and what U.S. allies have the resolve to do in the event of this case of sort of very flagrant, you know, aggression. Yeah, great. Um, Andrea, let me uh, put this question to you. This comes from Joseph in the uh, audience tuning in. Given the sizable public protests in Russia against this war and the strong dissatisfaction of the oligarchs, you can interpret the uh, meeting yesterday with the oligarchs who looked a little grim faced as Putin told them why all of this was, uh, he had no choice but to invade Ukraine. Um, you can interpret that. And the sanctions, is there a plausible prospect of those converging forces compelling regime, regime change in Moscow? And what can the West, I will amend this, what should the West if do, if anything, to further that cause? Um, so I think the most, 
analytically objective answer is there's little prospect for instability inside Russia. Um, and I say that because, um, you know, the, the levels of repression in Russia have really grown significantly in the past, you know, 12 months um, ahead of their Duma elections the last fall. And so the costs of collection ac collective action are extremely high. Um, Putin also has the loyalty of his security services. So there's a number of things that work uh, to his advantage in terms of um, being able to manage that kind of control domestically. Um, I am interested, my interest has been piqued for sure by the protests in Russia. There are there's a lot, there were a lot more protests in the last day and a half than I expected we would see. I think we saw there were protests. I think the number was about 62 cities across Russia, which is interesting because when you look at when protests can unseat a government, having geographic kind of spread is one of the important factors. It can't just be contained to kind of Moscow and Kiev, or sorry, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, so I think that there are more protests than I expected. Um, and it's also, you have to think about the way that these protest dynamics work in authoritarian regimes. There is also good research that shows in highly repressive regimes that protests are a really informative signal, more so than when it's easy to come out onto the streets. If you actually get people turning out and they can be fairly assured that they're going to be arrested, and by the way, there were over a thousand arrests, um, the fact that people are still turning out, I think, is an incredibly informative signal to other Russians watching that we that there are a lot of people out there who share your discontent about the regime. Um, so you can quite easily, this can turn into a cascade effect. I mean, just imagine that we're all talking about how Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been such a clarifying moment, like that people can no longer have questions about the nature of the regime that we face. Um, I think Russians are having a similar moment. And it's not to say that they had rose-colored glasses about who Putin was and the corruption and everything. Um, but when we, you know, all three of us here have been talking to Russians about what they think was likely to happen, most Russians, including opposition figures who would like to take issue with what Putin's doing, could not believe that Russia would uh, initiate an unprovoked war, right? That they could, it, was, it was unfathomable that he would start a war of aggression. And so the fact that he has now, I think, has been an incredibly acute, informative signal. These are the types of things that can trigger protests. There's also good research that shows like that when something is um, triggers a sense of injustice or is like so beyond the pale, you think about the Tunisian fruit vendor, for example, who, you know, who lit himself on fire. It's this sense of injustice that really can turn people out onto the street. So I think there's something interesting happening. It's worth watching. There's been um, actors and other celebrities who have signed letters. I think there's been some members of the elite, the children of the elite who have kind of done some things to say this, you know, this is Putin's war, it's not Russia's war. So I think there's a number of things that are interesting enough that merit our attention. I think it's more likely to be like a bottom-up something rather than the elite um, for some of the reasons that you were saying, Richard. Putin has so tied the fates of all of these individuals to him that I think they dare not defect. Um, they all have a vested interest in seeing the Putin regime continue because that's, you know, that that's how they continue to access the perks of power. So it seems unlikely to me that it would be like an overtly elite led thing. Um, but it doesn't mean that elite dynamics can't give space for the protest to take root um, eventually. So a long winded answer to say, like, I don't think it's likely to happen in the near term, but I don't think we should discount it. 
And the thing we should all know from studying other authoritarian regimes is these things look very stable and secure until they are not. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, it's, it's plausible. Great. Um, maybe Jeff, I'll go to you with this one, um, but others, if, if you want to come in, please do. Ulrich uh, has a question about negotiations between Moscow and Kiev. Is there any probability this will happen in a serious way? Um, I'll just add for a little context that in the past 10 hours, 12 hours, something like that, the Russians in particular seem to be all over the place on negotiations. Uh, it's hard to see how much of this is real and and not. But originally, Dmitry Peskov came out and said, yeah, 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 we're happy to talk about uh, neutrality and demilitarization, and that would stop the war. And then um, Lavrov has said, well, the Russians have to stop fighting and then we'll talk, which doesn't seem to be a very uh, good proposition. Uh, and now there's talk about meeting in Minsk with delegations uh, to discuss neutrality and, and Zelensky sort of uh, seems to have flagged that possibility. Um, but again, that would seem to be completely incommensurate with a forcible regime change goal. So, um, Jeff, how do you how do you see the prospect of a negotiated end to this? Um, I don't think they're I don't think the prospects are particularly good. Um, I think that the Ukrainian leadership's actually been rather emboldened by um, both Ukraine's resistance and the level of support they've gotten internationally. And uh, from the Russian, I mean, looking at the negotiations, you're basically asking someone to ne negotiate their own suicide. So that's just not, you know, a place of, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of room there. They're just really asking Ukraine to surrender. And I think it's become pretty clear that the Ukrainians have no intent on surrendering. What I, what I do think is, you know, there's a scenario down the road, let's say the Russians do physically remove the regime as it, as it stands now and, and place somebody else. I don't know that they can leave. I don't know that they can leave and, and, and expect that, you know, puppet government to actually survive. And so then you're stuck in this perpetual position where you have to stay there to keep to prop these guys up. That does become costly over time. I mean, I think you know militarily they can they can do this for some time, but then as as the Ukrainian economy becomes worse and worse and worse, and people you know you've got pensions and healthcare and all kinds of other things that are falling to the floor um, in a modern European society, I think you you really start coming up against a pretty intractable and difficult problem. Mm. Um, Andre, I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on the negotiation side or a political end to this uh, other than regime change, but is that generally your view as well? Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I agree with everything that just Jeff said. And I don't think that, I mean, it, again, listening to Putin's statements as of today, it doesn't seem like someone who's in the mood for negotiations right now. So it's, it's way, it seems way too early for any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mike, I'll, I'll go to you on a couple of these. I'm going to put two questions together from the audience. One is from Angus. What are NATO's options for supporting Ukraine short of entering the conflict as a combatant? Obviously, there's been a lot of military aid going to uh, Ukraine. And then uh, Christopher asked, what specific weapon systems and intel support should the U.S. and its allies be providing to Ukraine? Uh, what about plans to support an insurgency if Russia prevails on the battlefield? And... Um, and while we're adding to all of these uh, questions here about military support to Ukraine, um, as the Ukrainian military inevitably shrinks given the severe pressure it is under and as the ability to uh, put uh, military assistance into Ukraine becomes much more difficult just as a physical matter, 
Um, how do you see what the options are for continuing that? Okay, well, it, as far as military aid, I mean, it's clear we can no longer offer any air deliveries, right? I think the window is probably going to quickly close for ground deliveries as well. If you look at what's happening, Russian forces in Belarus are gearing up for Northwestern access to advance in Western Ukraine. They're probably going to cut off ground lines communication uh, to that from that part of Ukraine fairly quickly. Um, regarding intelligence, um, I'm sure I suspect we're offering what we can to the Ukrainians. I don't know if they are themselves are necessarily in a position to distribute it to their forces. A lot of people kind of have a notional uh, expectation that if you give some intelligence to Ukrainians and it goes to this magical place and those people give it to everybody on the battle line and all these things come together. But there's a very good chance that a large number of Ukrainian forces at, at this point in time are trying to make do with very disrupted, fragmented communications, lines of command and control. And there's no neat way to get all this information to um, uh, people on the front line necessarily. And you don't even know what's going on with Ukrainian systems. When you asked earlier about cyber warfare, and it's a good question of, you know, is there more or less than we expect? And my, my answer would have been, how do we know? I mean, yes, civilian networks and cell phones have not been disrupted. But we have no idea what's going on in Ukrainian government systems and Ukrainians military's command and control, none, right? And certainly Ukrainians are not gonna come on to Twitter and say, you know, we've lost a lot of command and control and things are looking really bad for us now. You're not gonna see that post from the Ukrainian MOD. So let's be frank about it. On uncertainty and, and, and those questions. So I'm always of two minds on answering them. My first my first answer is usually don't defeat, let's not defeat the Ukrainian military uh, in advance, right? As soon as people ask about uncertainty, say, why don't we wait to see how the conventional war actually goes? and see where things add up and see where the limit of the Russian military advance is and kind of see what happens outside of Kiev uh, before we before we have a more serious conversation about uncertainty and to see where is there uncertainty. Is there uncertainty? Are Russian forces going to substantially occupy Ukraine? It's possible if Ukrainians, um, let's, let's both say, really, really uh, kind of uh, defeat Russian early expectations for this war that there's some political settlement something that the Russian political ship didn't expect that they would settle for, but ultimately would have to. That's an optimistic take. Now here's a realistic one, okay? We're, we're barely two days into this fight. Um, some lines in the, on the Ukrainian side are definitely holding, but a large number of Russian forces have yet to make it into this conflict, right? Big picture, it doesn't look good for the Ukrainian military, right? There are substantial breakouts already, and I think the insurgency conversation is is a practical and very realistic one. Um, I think there the big question is what are the kind what are the kind of risks that we're willing to take on, and more importantly, what are the kind of risks the Ukrainians themselves want to take on to fight for their country? Right. Like we know what, what effects insurgencies have on cities. We know what effects insurgencies have on on regions, and we know the effect insurgencies have particularly um, on, on developed uh, countries and, and the like, meaning there will be substantial costs. There's nothing more costly than urban warfare and urban insurgency when it comes to destruction, civilian casualties, and, and loss of life and whatnot. So I'm afraid these are a very unsatisfactory answer, right? But I think from my, my honest view is we have to wait and see. It's very early into this conflict, right? And people have, in the last two days, people have asked me sort of, how do you think this is going? I said, I don't know. How could you imagine something's going barely in the first 48 hours? Right. Of, the, of the conflict. There's still a lot more here to play out. Right. Um, Andrea, do you want to come in on that? I saw you nodding, but I don't know if that was just an agreement or if you wanted to say something. And then 
Um, okay, well, well, maybe I'll go to you on, on another question um, that has uh, come in about other countries. So just to amend the question uh, a little bit from Surin, which asks what the threat would be to countries like Moldova and Belarus and the Caucasus and Kazakhstan, and maybe you might add the Balts to this. I mean, um, do you have a sense of how much of this is Ukraine specific and, uh, and uh, how much the threat of Russian aggression could go beyond Ukraine at this point? So my sense is this is pretty Ukraine specific at this point and all, but also lumping on the Belarus piece and kind of recognizing all of the erosion of Belarusian autonomy at the same time. But it does to me seem like this is fairly specifically targeted at Ukraine. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, well, but A, the spillover question is a real one. Um, and we've talked about, you know, Mike talked about uh, how things, or maybe he didn't talk about it just now. We talked about it a lot of times about how conflict could spill over. I mean, a lot of this fighting, there are Ukrainian forces that are quite close to the borders of NATO member states. We've talked about, uh, you know, it's obvious that if there's a cyber warfare that does kind of, you know, that's not likely to stay contained to Ukraine. And so could that spill over and affect critical infrastructure in NATO member states? If it is an insurgency and some of the insurgents and we're, you know, we're using Poland, for example, to equip the insurgency, does Russia decide to strike into Poland to take out those supply lines? So there's a lot of like very live questions about how this could spill over and influence NATO member states. Um, but I think in terms of like broader region, um, the, the allies, I think, are doing a really great job um, in terms of um, show, you know, strengthening uh, the eastern flank and trying to signal very clearly the seriousness with which NATO will defend its territory so that President Putin doesn't have any questions about resolve within the alliance. So that seems fairly clear to me. Um, so I think, yeah, that th th there is a risk, um, obviously inadvertent uh, spillover, so intentional testing of Article 5, but that seems like a you know, those are lower risks. And to me, at this point, it does still seem like it's fairly focused. I guess the last point, too, is like the importance of response. Um, you know, there ha this has been a pattern of Russian behavior. T 2008 with Georgia, 2015, attack on our election, 2016, and here we are. Um, so although we're talking about Ukraine today, I think if this response isn't sufficiently strong, um, you know, that could, you know, in time lead uh, to Putin to overestimate his abilities and um, the cycle could continue if we don't kind of put an end to the cycle now. Right. And Jeff, I know you want to come in. So there, there's two kinds of spill, at least two kinds of spillovers, right? One, as Andrea was saying, one is spillover that is Ukraine specific, but that spills over because of what's happening in Ukraine, right? So military assistance is coming in through a neighboring country and Russia targets the supply lines in order to stop that and doesn't really want to attack that country, but it wants to win in Ukraine. The other is it's successful in Ukraine or perceives itself to be successful in Ukraine, and that feeds the appetite to be successful in their minds in some other place and sort of apply a similar model there. And um, where, where do you come down on on those possibilities? I, I don't get. I don't think that they want to invade other countries. I think from their perspective, if they are able to occupy and partition Ukraine, they've kind of, in a sense, de facto shut NATO's door for the rest of, of Eastern Europe. Um, and I agree with everything Andre was saying about, um, you know, unintentional spillover or intentional um, spillover. But I, I do think one scenario is that if, if we create an existential problem in Moscow through some kind of sanction or something, something else and the Russian regime actually perceives that they're that they're in danger, I do think there's a real chance that they would intentionally escalate the conflict and expand it. And that could be anything from long range strikes into one, you know, something to trigger an Article 5 on purpose 
to really communicate, hey, if you guys want to go down this road, we can go down this road and we can broaden this conflict um, and make it much more painful. And so that's one of the scenarios that that I have in the back of my head um, as we look at, at sanctions going forward. Would you therefore draw a pretty sharp distinction between sanctions that are aimed at weakening Russia as an economy and as a military infrastructure and a affirmative American policy of political change in Moscow where we actually do try to, in whatever ways we can, support the, the counter Putin political entities there so as to hasten the day to which she's no longer running. I mean, th this, I guess, would feed precisely into the paranoid yeah. scenario that he's always dreamed exists, even though it yeah, happened. It can also be the case that, you know, we enact some kind of sanctions that we just don't anticipate the secondary and tertiary effects of, of these things. And it becomes, in a certain sense, unintentional. Right. The Russians would certainly respond regardless. I, and I, I, as a policy option, I don't think we should go down that route. Um, I think that the, the route we're currently going down is, is, a, is a good one. I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the first sanctions, like against VEB, it's mainly an, an, you know, an investment and government project bank. And so I think that was an attempt to, to shield the Russian population a bit from the immediate impacts of dropping that bank. But as, you know, if you drop Sparebank, you know, most Russians have money in that bank. If you truly drop it, not, not what we did the other day, um, that could have serious ramifications. And so I think it's that kind of scenario and I think we're actually trying to avoid, but if in, in some way we triggered that, I think that could could really up the um, probability of, of intentional broadening of the conflict. Mike, there's a question um, here about essentially Russian morale to fight in Ukraine um, and how sustainable this is. You know, there's these little flickers that have been reported about Russians who said they didn't know they were going to Ukraine in the first place and, you know, and all these other kinds of things. Do you think that's a variable in this at all that that uh, Russian troops at some point would not wish any longer or would forget what they wish would would not uh, fight in Ukraine, although ordered to do so? No, I don't understand, to be honest, where some of those ideas come from. So. In any in any war where you have advances and counterattacks, you're going to end up having POWs, troops that are cut off, particularly rear echelon troops that are coming and support troops that get ambushed, whatnot. These forces know exactly where they are and what they're doing there. The overwhelming percentage of the units being sent in are contract military. That's who staffs battalion tactical groups. Conscripts typically are in support units at best, and probably very few of them going in there. The notion of Russian military that gets, what, tired of fighting a war? People stop taking the orders? I'm sorry, I'm just not seeing a lot of that, and I don't think you should expect that here. The big question is about how the actual political leadership perceives the course of the war, what their assumptions were going in, which I think were probably very optimistic, and how they reassess that and the kind of costs that they're willing to pay. Morale is a factor. Morale is a big factor at unilevel you know, combat, for sure, on both sides, right? Uh, and that's going to affect the extent to which, you know, forces are combat effective is going to affect how easily people retreat or surrender. And you're going to have mixed results depending on the unit, depending on how the fight's going for them. Um, there are a lot of different axes of attacks. So you're going to get daily stories of some areas where people are surrendering, other places where people are holding fast fighting, some places where they're deep offensives and counterattacks. And what I really discourage everyone is um, making big strategic conclusions about the course of the war from like platoon level actions that they have tidbits of on Twitter. Please don't do this. Yeah. Please don't do those kind of military analysis. That's not that's not the way to go, especially in the first 48 hours, okay? So you're gonna hear about lots of small level tactical victories and defeats. And my advice is 
kind of look day to day at what's happening on the map writ large and what the direction is in, in, in terms of the fighting and, and what's happening between the two militaries. Sorry to kind of go off on this rant, but um, no, but but I, I think that um, that lesson is applicable well beyond uh, Russian military analysis to say that one should not abstract away from a few tweets to make a generalized conclusion about anything in the entire world is probably pretty good advice. So um, that admonition is taken. Uh, well, yeah, Mike. And just to add, be very wary of consuming any official claims, right? As soon as the war begins, right, the information environment becomes one of the principal areas of contest, one of the principal domains of contest, right? So at this point, you should consume any official claims with large buckets of salt, right, in terms of what's happening in the battlefield. Both sides will dramatically understate any losses and grossly exaggerate claims about adversary casualties and things they've destroyed. So just, just be very frank. I'm just being very honest about that. Yeah. Andrea, let me go to you on a question from Mark about how uh, economic blowback on European powers and businesses from the sanctions uh, might impact European and US decision-making and the willingness to sustain those sanctions over the long run. And it, maybe just to put a, a fine point on this, you know, it's very easy to be unified before the costs start rolling in. And when the costs start rolling in, they will roll in disproportionately on some countries rather than others. Uh, and then sustaining that unity over the long run and making sure that this looks not like Crimea or Hong Kong or, or the Donbass post-2014, but rather something very, very different, at least is not obviously easy to do. So how do you see sustained European transatlantic and to that matter, for that matter, Asian, because they're joining us in this too, uh, uh, behind the sanctions, the unity behind the sanctions. Yeah, I think it's a good question and still really hard to know. Uh, it might depend in part on how long and how violent and how bloody this war is. And I think the more brutal and the more horrific it is, then the easier it will be for allies to maintain the unity that we see. Um, you know, I think we should remember the sanctions that were put in place after 2014 have held all of these years. Um, I think there are a lot of people who were quite skeptical that they that Europe uh, would be able to sustain the cohesion uh, with those sanctions. Uh, I also think it's pretty remarkable how quickly the EU, the UK and the US all issued sanctions a in the wake of Putin's recognition of Luhansk and Donetsk. And then again, um, after the initiation of the conflict. Like the fact that the EU was able to move that quickly, you know, despite all the questions about Hungary, you remember when Orban went to see Putin and, you know, there were a lot of questions about how the EU would be able to maintain that level of cohesion. Um, but when push come to came to shove, you know, they were very quickly together uh, in implementing those sanctions. So um, I think, you know, regularly we've been surprised by the staying power of the European Union. And I guess I say that based on the 2014 sanctions. And then, uh, you know, I think we've seen even a more remarkable degree of cohesion among allies. I would wager to say that President Putin has probably been surprised, especially by decisions like the Nord Stream 2. Um, I think that one was probably especially a surprise. Um, but, you know, I'll, I, I, I uh, candidly, you know, have questions about how the U.S. will maintain the pressure, you know, after our next elections. There could be some calculation by President Putin that, after we have a less transatlantic, uh, transatlantic focused president like President Biden, you know, what happens to America's commitment to NATO and other things. So if Putin is looking at this in the longer term, maybe he calculates that, you know, the pressure will be 
uh, and the pain will be especially acute in the coming years, but that over time, America might lose interest. Um, that's an open question. So it's hard to say um, other than to, you know, my, I guess my point is so far the staying power of the EU and the US has been good. Um, and I think especially if this is a brutal, bloody war, that that cohesion is even like more likely to remain intact. And I think we're beginning, I guess, last point I'll make is, you know, in reference to the Nord Stream 2, um, that's a significant decision. And we've seen uh, Chancellor Scholl say a lot of that is about because of the questions that they have about being that integrated and intertwined with an authoritarian country like Russia and like Putin's Russia. And so I think we might see the beginning of steps in Europe to try to mitigate their dependence and their exposure to Russia over time. Let me just follow up with you for a second so on oil and gas, because um, the, the absence of oil and gas sanctions on the one hand is eminently reasonable because the United States and European countries are looking for ways to inflict costs on Russia in areas that are not going to inflict very high costs on us. On the other hand, this is nothing like, for example, the Iran sanctions, where we try to reduce to the greatest possible degree the export of their number one commodity. Um, and so there, and in fact, we're, especially the Europeans are trying to take steps to make sure that they, there is no diminishment of the supply of Russian uh, oil and gas. I mean, they, they don't want to see Russia uh, retaliate by turning off the spigot. So that's a pretty small sweet spot where we'll damage everything that we don't care as much about, but they'll continue to supply the stuff that we care most about. But oh, by the way, that gives them, uh, you know, some very some significant economic gains. So what do you, I mean, should oil and, and gas sanctions be a part of what we go after? Or do you agree with this um, carving it out from everything else? That's a hard question. I think, I mean, I think for the time being, I think the package of the sanctions that we saw from the US and, and what's coming from the EU and the UK it is fairly strong and robust. And the fact that we are talking about, you know, all of these very um, extreme sanctions on Russia's financial institutions, that's significant. It's significantly more um, than we did in 2014 or that we have ever done. Um, this export controls, I think, is also significant. So I think we're, and I think it is clear that the administration also wants to maintain some room to escalate. Uh, I'm not sure what the kind of cut point would be that would get us to move towards looking at oil and gas. I think it would have to be a really high bar. And I, and I honestly, at this point, can't quite imagine what it would be. But I don't know. So I guess um, for the time being, I think they've the, the United States, EU and the UK have taken a really solid approach uh, and to me, it makes sense that they would be wary to go after oil and gas, given the very high costs that it would have for, for Europe. So I think they've kind of calibrated this. Um, they are inflicting a lot of pain, um, and but in a way that's making it manageable and acceptable to European publics. Jeff, is that where where you come down as well? Yeah, no, I would. I don't really have much to add to what Andreas. I, I agree with everything she just said. Okay, we're about at time, so maybe I'll put the last question to Mike, and this is a pretty unfair one because it makes you look into your crystal ball, which you may choose not to do, but you've emphasized several times that we're in the early stages of this. Quite how early uh, are we in the stages of this conflict? I mean, how long do you think that this uh, could go on, and um, will, do you expect it to get uh, a lot more severe um, before it gets any better? First, very early, 
and I wouldn't jump to any conclusions based on this so far. Uh, second, I think we're in for either way a long, a long conflict, a sustained conflict with considerable attrition and destruction. Um, I think there's a lot more phases to be to be had in this war. Even if Russian forces attain a conventional victory on the ground, there's likely to be some urban warfare. They'll suck in Russian units. There could be this insurgency we spoke, spoke about earlier. There's a lot, a great deal more to, to happen in this conflict. Um, I hate being speculative about it just because so much in war is, is ultimately contingent, right? On the one hand, we can say that, yes, Russia has quantitative, qualitative superiority, right? And people who, I see a lot of optimistic takes on Twitter based on the first two days. And I think I seen that, and I think people want to believe that. I'd like to believe that too. Um, you know, I'm an objective analyst. I'm originally from Kiev, Ukraine. It's not a place that's sort of an abstraction for me. So I, I also care, but be that with me, you know, the way I look at it is that there's, there's a, a, the big question is not even so much about what the military side of the question looks like, right? Russia may be able to achieve a lot of battlefield victories. The big question is, are they going to be able to achieve their political aims with use of force? And that's the part I'm very skeptical of. I was very skeptical of that from the very beginning. Like, I mean, I could see how any leader would recklessly make this mistake. I've seen lots of countries who are not even personalist authoritarian systems make this kind of crazy decision, in my view. Right. Um, but just looking, standing back and looking at it, I'm not sure I understand. How, how they really think they're going to be able to achieve their political aims with this use of force, right? Uh, that's that's the truth of it. So they may be able to achieve a great deal of battlefield victory, but the jury is very much out on the much more important question. That's where I would personally leave it. Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds absolutely right. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Andre Kendall-Taylor, Jeffrey Edmonds, Michael Kaufman, for sharing all of your insights today. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Uh, next Wednesday on uh, March 2nd, we will have uh, another CNAS event like this that will be focused on um, specifically on sanctions and export controls and the intricacies of what has been announced already and what may be coming down the pike. So uh, look for uh, an invitation to go out and notice about that for those who are interested in that. Um, but in the meantime, thank you again, Andrea, Jeff and Mike. Super helpful and insightful. And thank you to everybody for joining us. And uh, we'll be back with more in due time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.